Welcome to the A Better Way to Farm podcast, where we share serious secrets about profitable farming. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we hope that you'll love the knowledge we share not only with you today, but also in future episodes. So let's get right into it. Hello, guys. Welcome to the A Better Way to Farm podcast. I hope you're having a great day because I know I am. I have the honor and privilege of introducing two very special guests and welcoming them to the show today, and I could not be more excited about it. Our interviewer is no stranger to the podcast or A Better Way to Farm. He has been involved in agriculture for the past 28 years, dedicated that time to researching and learning and helping the American farmer with their input and just improving their operation all around. We have some great questions lined up today for an even better guest. I would like to welcome our interviewer and my dad, Rod Livesey, back to the podcast. How are you today? Fabulous, Kayla. Thank you. Our guest speaker today, we are super excited about. It has been great to talk with him a little bit and get to know him as we've been preparing for this. He was born and raised in Huntingburg, Indiana, and went on to receive a degree in plant pathology from Purdue University in 1985. Upon completing college, he dedicated the next 36 years to agriculture by working in the seed industry, including 17 years with DeKalb and Monsanto, as well as serving as head of agronomy for LG Seeds. He was a founder of the first internet seed company and a lead agronomy educator for 360 Yield Center. Today's guest also served as president of the Indiana Seed Trade Association, as well as a member of the Illinois and Indiana Crop Improvement Association. Through the past four years, he has worked with Beck Seed and is currently the Director of Research, Agronomy, and PFR. Beyond agriculture, he is actively involved at his church and is a deacon. He enjoys spending time outdoors and, most importantly, being with his wife of 29 years and his three children. It is my honor to welcome to the podcast Jim Schwartz. Jim, how are you today? I am doing well, Kayla. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you today as well. Yes, and we are super excited. It's been great to get to know you have worked on what we have lined up for today, and I think our audience is going to absolutely love it. Great. All right, let's dive right in here. Jim, I, too, want to say thank you. We appreciate it very much, and we have a list of questions we'd like to go through. But let me start with this. It's really cool that you hold a very unique position. It allows you to impact farmers all across the country. How did you get started in agriculture, and then what led you to end up at Beck's? It's a great question. Interestingly enough, I'm like a lot of folks in agriculture today. I didn't technically grow up on a farm. However, I did grow up in a very small town, 5,000 people, and what I did grow up working on farms my whole life. I loved working outdoors. I loved, um, you know, working by the sweat of my brow. And I determined, it's interesting, both my brothers are actually engineers at Purdue University, and they're older than me. So everybody thought I was going to go be an engineer at Purdue. But I love the outdoors. I love agriculture in general. And I don't exactly know. It's kind of like a virus, right? It just gets in your system, and you can't get it out, you know? And so um, <laughs> I love agriculture. I love farming. I love farmers. And that was what drew me then to uh, go to Purdue and get my degree in plant pathology. Uh, just a love of agriculture. So that's how I got started. I was very fortunate, very blessed to have great opportunities coming out of college. I worked for Cargill initially and then started my career there at Monsanto, or DeKalb slash Monsanto. But um, over the years, so I've lived 
So Bex is located here in Central Indiana. I've lived here since 1996. I've gone to church with a lot of the, the Bex folks, known a lot of them. Actually, Scott Beck and our family both, we ended up adopting from the Ukraine, and, and Scott and I and his family knew each other through that process as well. And the door opened after many years of, of being in agriculture for me to come up here and work about four years ago, and I, I couldn't be more happy. I, what I really appreciate about my current role is, is, is I just spoke to a group of farmers that came in to, to learn a little bit more about Bex, and as I shared with them, my job is to help you all succeed. That is my job. And, man, when you can wake up in the morning and say your job is to help other folks succeed, that's a great day. Every day is a great day. And that is uh, what drew me to this opportunity here at Bex is to say, hey, what can you do today to help others succeed? I love it. What a great attitude and a a great company that fosters that attitude. I can appreciate that. So Jim, research is a lot of very detailed work and just a lot of hard work. What fuels your passion for experimenting? That is a great question as well. I would tell you, so I have a life axiom. Every time I speak to a group, I share this life axiom, and it's really true. My life axiom is every day I live, I learn how dumb I was the day before, okay? <laughs> and when you have that it's, it, it's true. Trust me, if you ask my wife, she'll validate that. But because of that, tr- truly, when I look at the next day and the next day, I sit there and think, what can I do different? What can I do that's unique? How can I, you know, I've learned, it's interesting. So 36 years ago when I started in the industry, what we talked about agronomically back then is not necessarily true today. What the textbooks say back then, they don't say that today. And so that's what fuels my passion is to say, gosh, every day I can learn, I can find something different, something unique. And that's frankly what I love about our practical farm research program here, but it doesn't even have to be here anywhere. It's the ability to wake up in the morning and go, hey, I wonder what's different. I'll give you a great example. Here in the the tri-state area of of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, they have these tri-state fertilizer recommendations. Those recommendations have been utilized for 30 plus years and they just released a whole new set of recommendations because one of the things they're learning is the utilization rates of P and K are probably different than what we thought with modern hybrids. To answer your question, that's it. It's the fact that I, I can wake up every morning and go, you don't know all the answers. And I have a saying I, I also like to say is that just when you think you got all the answers, that's when they change the question. And that's especially <laughs> true in agriculture. And so that's what keeps me going. You know, it's interesting, Jim, because I've been working in this position 28 years. And when I'd been doing it for about five years, I really thought that I knew a lot. And now here I am 23 years after that. And I am convinced that for everything we know about agriculture, it's just the tip of the iceberg. The learning curve is going to be so incredible and so exciting over the next 20 years that it's going to be fun to watch it unfold. And I love that you're on the cutting edge of that. You know, I tell people, people, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I tell people that, you know, I've been in the industry 36 years. You know what that means? That means I have one year of experience 36 different times. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And our goal is to avoid that and try to go on and get 36 different experiences. And you've done a lot of different things. That I've <laughs> one of those is the PFR book. It's very extensive. It's growing every year. Could you share with us how it was created and walk us through the testing process of, of how that those products get listed in there. Yeah, absolutely. So the practical farm research program actually began in 1964 when Sonny Beck returned with his master's degree from Purdue. And he felt like at the time agriculture was changing and the industry became more involved. What he felt was that, and he correctly 
interpreted the fact that public funding for university basic research was going to decline over time, and he just felt sure that others in industry were going to need to pick up the mantle and do research. From the very first studies he did in 1964, we continue to grow the program and do more and more of those every year. So that's how it was created. The process itself, it's really unique. So we have six different locations. We have a location in London, Ohio, so Central Ohio, here in Central Indiana, Henderson, Kentucky, Eppingham, Illinois, El Paso, Illinois, Colfax, Iowa, and then we have three cooperator locations, one in Wisconsin, one in Michigan, and one in Minnesota. The goal is we want to get multi-location, multi-year data in order to help validate some of the ideas. But the testing process itself, I would tell you the best ideas that we get to test come from growers. They have ideas, they have concepts, and they bring them to us. And we're like, that's a great idea. Why don't we think about that? Why don't we think how do we test that? So then what we do, and those ideas come to us all through maybe November, December. We develop our protocols. That's what we're doing right now. We'll develop our protocols, and then we'll take them out in the field, and we'll do our testing. Now, the one thing that's a little bit unique about practical farm research is all our studies are done field scale. So what I mean by that is our equipments are field-scale planters, combines, tractors, because one of the key words in practical farm research is practical. Plots are typically, I would say, three to 500 feet long. We replicate three to five times at each location and then try to replicate three to five locations for any study that we do do. But again, and we also do field-scale studies on things like high-speed planting or something like that. But the goal is really to be, number one, practical, and number two, more field scale. So it, it will, at least to a certain degree, replicate what farmers are doing and using on the farm. That's fantastic, and we appreciate that. And it is a great – sometimes I feel for the people. I look through the book, and I see some product that after three years – there was one in particular, and I don't remember the name, and I wouldn't say it if I did, but it had a negative return of $33 and a penny. And I thought, wow, that's going to be hard to go sell that product, <laughs> you know, because you guys publish every – I mean – you know, we've given you guys, you've studied like four or five of our products, and no matter how they turn out, you publish them. Now, we've been able to be on the right side of that, but I appreciate the fact that you guys don't hold any punches. You just tell the truth. That's to be respected greatly. Yeah, we share that with anyone who, um, who wishes to do work with us is that, look, we publish the data, good or bad. We don't, as you know, we don't take money to do the research, and the reason we don't is we, we want to maintain a clear line of delineation, right? We, we don't take money. We don't accept any kind of remuneration, and we tell everyone that regardless of how the data turns out, we publish the data. So, yep. yep. I've often said that a lot of times in, in agriculture that we, are, we get the chance to look at the best data that money can buy, and I think the key phrase is money can buy. And I appreciate you guys that your data is not bought and that can't be done. Tell me a little bit about, I mean, you guys do a very extensive PFR book. What's the best way for a farmer to review that and then to implement the results? That is a great question. I, you know, interestingly enough, I tell people that book for a lot of farmers makes a great doorstop or coaster, right? If you, <laughs> if you don't use that thing correctly, it's just a great big batch of data. In fact, it's overwhelming. So your question is a great one. Here's what I tell them to do. So I said in the front of the book, there's a section called PFR Proven. And what PFR Proven means is that is a product or a practice that we have tested for a minimum of three years at multiple locations. If over the course of those three years, that product or practice has provided a positive yield return each and every year, 
and average a positive return on investment over those three years, we'll stamp it PFR proven. So what we tell growers is those are the products and practices that we feel most comfortable with, at least saying this is a starting point where if you want to try something on your farm, why don't you think about trying a PFR proven product practice because it's been proven multiple locations, multiple years, and probably the odds of it, it working on your farm are better. So we say to start there, start with a PFR proven product or practice. We always suggest hey, go to your multi-location section and then look at the products and or practices we've tested at multiple locations. That's the next section in the book because that's more data. It's more site years. And then finally, if you're interested in a local, uh, you know, if you're from Ohio and you want to look at the Ohio location, do that. But we suggest PFR proven, then multi-location data first. And I appreciate that. We see, you know, someone gets a bright idea oftentimes and it works really great. I live in southeast Iowa as an example. And, you know, so I get something and it works here and I instantaneously assume that it will work everywhere in the United States. And I think that's a fallacy in our studies. And I appreciate the fact that you guys are so geographically diverse and you take all of that into account. That's a real testimony to doing it correctly. Yeah. And Jim? we also were careful. Oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say no, we're no, careful no. to try to, when we picked our soils, we actually, for instance, we had a location in El Paso, Illinois, and a location in Eppingham, Illinois. That might as well be the sun and the moon, right? The Eppingham <laughs> is poorly drained heavy clay. And El Paso is prairie soil, but as we select the locations, we're careful to make sure that we have a proper balance as well. In addition, you know, some of our locations, we, for instance, in Ohio, there's a heavy influence of no-till over there because many growers are more in a no-till environment. So we try to replicate what growers are dealing with. Nice. I'm glad that you're taking all that into account, and it really is a benefit to the grower because they can save. I like some place that they can go and they can save years off their learning curve. Yes, they can try all of these products and see which ones work and which ones don't. But to me, well, my wife often says, Jim, experience is what we get when we get what we didn't want. Wisdom is learning from <laughs> someone else's experience. And so they have the opportunity. Well, you know, and it's true. It's very accurate. You know, they have the opportunity to learn from your experience. And that would be wisdom to go in here and say, all right, these things, obviously, I don't want to try. These things I need to try because they've worked multiple times, multiple places, multiple years. And so it really gives them a great springboard. Jim, what is one tool or product that you would recommend every grower listening could put into action? It's a great question. You know, I talked about PFR proven, and we're up to over 90 PFR proven products and practices. And so we created what we call our success strategies. So that's five in corn and five in beans. And I would say those are ones that we think can work for most growers. In soybeans, I would say probably one that's been very, very consistent, Rod, is our three fungicide application in soybeans. Now, the interesting thing there is I didn't just say a fungicide application, I said an R3 fungicide application. Because here's the thing <laughs> we've learned over time, right? The, an R3 soybean plant typically has nodes, say, 6 through 12 or present, somewhere like that. Those are the nodes that are present. We know that the trifoliates at each node feed those pods, that corresponding node. Well, there's been a lot of data from universities that have found that the money nodes, like the 65 to 70% of the soybean plant's yield comes from nodes 6 to 13. Well, guess what nodes we're spraying when we spray R3? We're typically spraying nodes around 6 to 12, 6 to 13, so we're protecting those money nodes. So that's why our data would say 
Yep, R3 fungicide application in soybeans. On corn, there's, again, we have five success strategies. One that I think is really important for most growers, and it, it can change, but we tell guys we've done probably more research around closing wheels than anybody else. We've done it for, for years and years and years, and, and spike closing wheels. Um, now, if you have a really loamy soil or you farm on terrace, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, especially as, as farms have become bigger, Rod, now I know individual grower does this. It's always the neighbor that does it, but he might push it just a little bit early, right? And so so we've learned that, honestly, spike closing wheels, those really do pay. In fact, they, they, our day would say they're three to five bushel in corn and two to four bushel in beans. We really encourage growers to look at, at least investigate spike closing wheels on their farm. Wow. For corn air beans, wow. really. Yeah. That's awesome. One of your things that you talk about as a success strategy is there's a seeding rate on soybeans, and that's something that we have been very active in telling the guys. Basically, we believe there's a lot of money lost to the American farmer by planting soybeans too thick. Your uh, data would seem to bear that out and say, yes, that's true. So, very it, interesting. It absolutely is true. You can imagine when All we right. went to the owners of Sonny and Scott Beck, and, and we said, hey, we've got a bunch of data that shows they should plant less soybeans. What should we do? And the, it was funny. The response was, does it help a farmer succeed? And we're like, it does. And then they said, then release the data. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That's fantastic. I work for my daughters, as you know. I have two daughters who help with the business, and, and most of the time I'm actually just doing what they tell me. So Kayla gave me three questions that we have to use to wrap up with. So if you'll indulge me here, the first thing that she'd like to know is what motivates you to work hard? Fear of failure. Fear of failure. That's, fear, that's really? I, I Fear of failure. I do not want to let people down. You know there's all these personality tests that people do, and all these companies have these personality tests. Well, I, I pretend to use dog breeds, okay? And I'm a Britney uh -huh. Spaniel. Okay, so if you know anything about Brittany Spaniel, they never want to let their owners down. Well, that's me. I don't want to let folks down, and I'm motivated to help other people, and that's what gets me going and helps, helps me wake up every morning and come to work. Nice. I love it. Secondly, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Uh, so this would, because I'm married and I've been married 29 times, I can tell you it would be Australia because that's where my wife wants to live. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Good answer. And the last thing is, what's, yes, your favorite sir. Thing to listen, what's your favorite thing to listen to in the car? If you look at my playlist, it's pretty doggone eclectic. I would say there's probably four different types of music I listen to. I listen to contemporary Christian, country, 70s and 80s rock, of course. And then, believe it or not, my parents grew up listening to, like, big band, Glenn Miller. And so I love all four of those music genres. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, I, yeah. any closing comments you'd like to say, Jim? No, I appreciate the time. I am very blessed that I get to do what I do every day, and I enjoy it. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to folks like you. Well, we appreciate that. Kayla, what would you like to leave as a parting shot here? I just want to reiterate, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great, like I said, to get to know you, and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to everything you had to say today, and I know that our audience will as well. Well, Jim, I do appreciate you. Thank you. Keep up the good hard work there at Bex. Please, we encourage everyone to give Bex a look on Facebook. Folks, if you're listening to this podcast and you find value in it, share it with a friend. We would love that. Give us a rating when you get at the end of it. Rate us, please. And if you're interested in more information, feel free to follow us on Facebook at A Better Way to Farm. We try to bring value to the farmer each and every day, and we count it as a blessing for those of you who follow us. 
And I hope with that being said that everyone is having a better day. Thank you for joining us this week on the A Better Way to Farm podcast. If you found value in this episode, we would appreciate you rating us on iTunes or simply sharing with a friend. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and tune in next time for serious secrets about profitable farming.